Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Genesis chapter 1, please. We're going to be looking at three major uh, texts or pieces of scripture this morning, so I hope you'll keep your Bibles open, your uh, apps available as we look at those. I want you to see with your own eyes, but uh, I'd like us to pray this morning as we begin. So uh, even during the collecting of offering, it's an okay, keep your eyes open and just let me talk to God and see what he'll do for us. Father, it is my prayer this morning that you will open our hearts and our ears, uh, that there are many voices right now speaking to us. I pray that you'd silence every one of them but your own so that we can hear and know how to live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, this morning, I want you to set aside any expectations you have about my sermon on sexuality. Some of you are going to want me to make a big statement about your least favorite sexual expression. And some of you are going to want me to make a big statement about your favorite sexual expression. I may or may not do that. Uh, the truth of this morning is the task before me each and every week is to open the Word of God and to tell you what it says, not what I think. It's to open the Word of God and deal with what is true, not as what is popular. And uh, you're going to have an opportunity to come back on Wednesday night with specific questions about today's message. We won't handle any of those this morning, but we do invite you to come back and I'll have a panel of uh, Bible people with me. And we'll answer your questions and talk about the implications of this message this morning. And you'll see that number listed on the screen that you can text in your questions all morning long if you so choose. I also need to tell you that you probably won't have evidence of this when I'm done, but this is the most researched sermon I've ever done. Uh, I have looked at what the liberals and the conservatives say. I've, I've looked at what has been preached about this, and the truth is there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible has been preached on this topic for a long time, and... I'm probably just going to fall right in that company line on purpose. But I'm grateful to scholars like Timothy Keller and Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Albert Moeller, Martin Ernest, and a litany of others that over the past three months I've studied for this. And I don't tell you that I've studied for this because I want you to think this is going to be an impressive sermon. I'm telling you I've studied for this because this is important and I don't want to make a mess of it. So I've tried to put in due diligence and respect to your time and attention. I think this is important. Uh, between first and second hour, the worship team and the band made this kind of comment. This is an unusual sermon. It's really intense. Yeah, we're talking about sex. You hear about it all week long until you come to church, and then we don't talk about it for centuries. I think it's okay for us to talk about sex in church. So let's do it. What is the theology? Each and every week, we try to establish a theological base for the authority by which we speak. In other words, what evidence do we have that we're accurate or seeking accuracy well? And so I want to define two terms here so that you'll understand what I'm talking about today. When I use the word sexuality, sexuality is a lot like gender. It is what makes us either male or female. And what I want you to know is that every one of us in this room is a sensual, sexual creature. And there should be no shame associated with that. That's the way we're created. And I believe if you deny your sexuality, you deny your humanity. And that's really important for us to establish. We'll talk about that more in a moment. When we use the word sex, we're talking about the expression of our sexuality, both mentally and physically. If I can simplify it, my friend Adam Scooty says it very well, it's the being and the doing. Sexuality is what we are. 
Sex is what we do. And unfortunately, we have mixed the two and lost the difference. And we've turned ourselves into sexual animals that go after whatever we crave. And that's not the way we're created. I also want to celebrate the goodness of all of this. If you'll read the writings of Jesus, he never condemns sexuality. He only condemns the misuse of sex. And again, there's a difference. So I'd like to go to the very first point this morning as we've kind of established this, the terminology we're going to use and what it means. I want to point out biblically, if we want a biblical worldview, and we're taking every thought captive to Christ, our creation is our definition. I go back to what I said a few weeks ago when we talked about man's purpose. You did not choose to be here. You did not will yourself into existence. So it is not unreasonable to assume that because you weren't here by your own choice, the person who put you here had a bigger choice for you. So our creation is our definition. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 7 and 8. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over all creatures. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. A couple of points I want to bring out of Genesis 1, which helps us understand why we are what we are and how we're to respond to that. I want you to notice that God created man physically, and then he breathed into him life, spirit. So what's significant about that? You were a body before you were a person. And in a world that makes everything about your physicality evil, wrong, or lustful, that's not correct. You were a body before you were a person, and that was God's plan. And the physical body is not incidental to who you are. So please remember that. That's a theological point of interest today. The body and the soul are united by God for a purpose. They're not, one is not unnecessary compared to the other. Although when we sin, we choose to live either in the body or and abandon the soul. The second point I want to make is Genesis reveals that the created body had needs. And God allowed those needs and created those needs, but he also gave us a satisfaction for every need. For instance, man would have need for food. So God gave him the fruit of the garden. Shake your head if that makes sense. He said, you're going to be hungry? Here's what I'll give you to, to fuel your body. And, uh, and I also love just small theological point. It says, fruit of the garden, not vegetables of the garden. Read into that whatever you choose. Just, that's free. Second of all, Adam would need a purpose. So God gave him work to do. He called it dominion over the animals and the earth. And that was to be shared with God. goes back to the purpose message a few weeks ago in our series. God needed companionship, so he created Eve for Adam. As the last great act of creation, he gave man relationship. And it also was a relationship that he retained with man. So what I'm trying to point out here in my second point is, our needs show that mankind is dependent and God is the answer to the things we need. Shake your head if that makes sense. There's no need God created in us that he did not give us the answer to in himself. Okay, third point. God created gender for his purposes and ours. And when he brought them together, he said that Adam and Eve are to multiply, childbearing, and they are to subdue the earth, fulfill the purposes he created them for. And God created genders, and he needed both genders for mankind to fulfill his purposes. So if you're ever told that women are lesser than men, go back to the book of Genesis and show them how wrong they are. To be able to fulfill the purposes of mankind, we needed physical bodies and we needed differing genders. 
This is how God knit this together. It goes back to creation. He told us all about it. Then he gave us sex for our sexuality, an expression of our sensual nature, a need of ours, and he provided the answer to us, just like everything else. And I want to tell you four things that I believe the Bible teaches about sex. Now, this is, some of this is going to be old hat, and some of this is going to be brand new. It depends who you're listening to. If you're listening to the world, they will make fun of these four points. If you're listening to the word of God, these should be no-brainers. Number one, sex is for oneness. That's a unique term because we don't see sex that way. We see sex as just an act. As long as two consensual adults are in agreement, what's wrong? Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The intimacy of this the loving one another, the giving yourself completely. And if you have misunderstood marriage because we present it in America as such an option, marriage is to give yourself completely as one person to the other person, becoming one. It's not to hold back parts of yourself that they have to earn, but it's to give yourself together to this person. It's oneness. The Bible also uses an expression for this intimacy called knowledge. In Genesis 4, it says, Adam slept with his wife Eve, and he knew her. This wasn't just that he knew her physically, but he knew her heart and her soul and her body and mind. Uh, Second thing, sex is for procreation. It's one of the assignments given to mankind. In Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. I think procreation is very interesting. Uh, Because of the culture in some religious groups, procreation is a duty, You have to produce children. But that's actually not what I think it is. I think procreation is one of those moments where most like God, we can create life. And he allowed us into this opportunity to create life in this beautiful, loving relationship. What a gift. Third thing is, and this is going to be the most surprising thing a preacher can say in church, sex is for pleasure. How uncomfortable are you right now? (laughs) Church, is sex good? Look at you. (laughs) If I said something about the St. Louis Cardinals, this place would go ballistic. I say, is sex good? And one shy guy in the front, yeah, I think. (laughs) It's good. Read the Song of Solomon and tell me that the author of that book didn't find that it socially, physically, and emotionally is incredible. Use God's way. It's beautiful and powerful and wonderful, and it's okay for the church to redeem sex. Why does the world get to steal that from us? It's okay. Enjoy it. It's supposed to be. And lastly, sex is for protection. I'll just use a a brief reference. Hopefully I'm not stripping it too much of its context, but I think it's the point Paul's making within context. In 1 Corinthians 7, 9, he says, but if they cannot control themselves, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It's a need. And God has provided marriage and the other gender to meet that need. And it's in his perfect plan right out of the book. And if you look at Genesis chapter 2, there's a beautiful image of how this came together. Adam and Eve knew each other biblically. They were one in duty and in relationship and in honesty and with sex. And it says they were naked and without shame. Conclusion, sex is good, it's a gift from God, and it meets our needs. But then we messed it up. And Adam and Eve sinned. Now what I need to point out to you is Adam and Eve did not sin sexually. But it messed up their oneness. Sin will always do that. Sin will affect every part of who we are. 
Notice that when they sinned and ate of the fruit of the tree that they were told not to, they felt naked and they were ashamed. In chapter 2, they were naked and had no shame. In chapter 3, after sin, they were exposed and they were naked and ashamed with each other and they ran away from God. Notice that these two people who had lived their entire existence without covering now realize that they were different physically and they covered up their nakedness and they hid from God and God who wanted nothing more than relationships shows up and they're hiding from him and he knew that the oneness he had with them and they had with each other was devastated by sin. So what do we do with all of this? You see, the world wants us to bring empty solutions to our needs. And I want to tell you this, and I, I, I want to be very careful. I hope you know my heart. I don't want to come in here and ride some pony around the stage and grandstand against culture, whatever culture is. But our series, we've been looking at 2 Corinthians 10.5 as our core verse, and that tells us that we're to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Every concept needs to be presented before the majesty and authority of Jesus and allow him to speak into it. Would you agree? That's the way that, whether you want to live or not, that's the healthy spiritual way to live is to take every thought captive to Christ. So I want to say this sentence. It took a long time writing it. It won't seem like it, but it was big and long, and I've whittled it down. We need to take every one of our thoughts sexually captive to Jesus, not to Hollywood, not to romance novels, not to vampire diaries, not to pornography, and not to social trends. Because every one of those will tell you, do what makes you feel good. And that is a poison that will kill you. You need to take it to Jesus Christ who's trying to bring life and hope and redemption. So I want to show you from the Bible, not just your preacher's mind, what the cultural worldview of sexuality is today. It's taken in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Please turn your Bibles to there so you can see this text for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 13, and then we're going to jump down to verse 16. I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 13, Paul uses an expression. It's in quotations, meaning that Paul is quoting a source from outside himself. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Jump down to verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body." If, I can, if you'll allow me to use this passage, I think we can show you biblically what the two major worldviews about sexuality are. The first one is this, our sexuality is an appetite. When Paul says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, what he's saying is, just give the body what it wants. American culture promotes this, if I may. They say that as long as two consenting adults decide they want to do this together, and it's not harming anybody else. Our government says it's nobody else's interest, so just let it happen. It's just an appetite. We are just sexual creatures who must, I must eat, I must have sex, I must breathe, as if that's the simplification of who we are. Remember what I told you from Genesis chapter 1. When you separate the soul from the body, you are deconstructing the way you were created. 
They are not two separate things. They must be held one and the same. Or you do damage. We deify sex. I think it's safe to say no culture has ever made sex more of a god than the American culture today. When news channels and programming can't have a simple episode without somebody performing sex at some fashion addressed in some way, we have deified this as the cure-all for everything. If you have sex, then you will be happy, you will have joy, and you will be wise. Really? I would suggest no. Because Paul takes that expression, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and he says that their line is, and God will destroy both of them. It doesn't matter. The, the stomach and food are all going to go away. But Paul corrects them by saying the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's talking to believers. You have, you have sold your life to Christ, and he has accepted all of you, body and soul. Live in such a way as to bring him honor. So you are more than an appetite. And if you really, I, I guess this just dawns on me, if you really believe sex is just an appetite, make sure you tell your partner that's why you're doing that the next time you do. Look at the other person and go, you know what, it's not really about you, babe. I just gotta. Good luck. <laughs> Second thing, our sexuality is a weakness. The American culture doesn't say this. I'm fearful the church does. That we've become so Puritan to the worst definition of that word. 1 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. We go, huh? He's actually saying that, yes, in the pursuit of the way the Corinthian culture was going, it would be better just to stay away from the opposite sex. But then he tells us, but here's what God has provided for you. You see, it's not a weakness. I'm afraid you can devalue sex more than you can give it extraordinary value. Because it, we'll talk in just a few moments about what the Bible says. In fact, let's just do it. What is the biblical worldview of sexuality? I'm very grateful for the people I work with. I send my outline to a couple of different people. They pretty it up, put it on paper, give it out to you on Sunday mornings. And the people who proof check, Marcy and Jill, saw my outline. And my outline said, a biblical worldview of sexuality. And they came back to me and said, shouldn't it be the? And I went, yeah, the worldview, not a worldview. So I guess I'm more confident now. All right, the biblical worldview of sexuality. What is the Bible? Why does God give us a sensual nature and why does he give us the, the, how to meet that need? Because it performs two functions. It's not an appetite, and it's not a weakness. First of all, our sexuality forms us. If you like the word shapes, put that in if you like that better. It forms us. It is a part of our creative nature, and it is a part of our recreation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Now I want to pause here for a moment because I believe the word prostitute in American context is not the same form. Although it could be similar, it's not completely the same word that Paul would have used to the Corinthians. They often use sex as an act of worship to the gods of the pagans. And I think when he's using the word prostitute, he's really referring to someone <clears throat> who's consensually being a, if you'll allow me, a friend with benefits. 
So there was potentiality here that there were two people who just decide that they would meet that need with each other and there would be no other obligations. And Paul said, yes, there are obligations. You don't get to decide how the system works. When you give yourself to someone sexually, you are becoming one with them in the eyes of the Lord. And that cannot be taken away because you don't like it. If I may be so direct, you cannot drink poison and then wonder why you're sick. You cannot tell the creator, I'll use my body separate of my soul and expect that my soul will remain perfect. No, they're not separated. God breathed life into this thing we call the body and through our acts of worship and through everything we do, we become one flesh with God or we become torn from God. And some people have said, and I'm not making fun of them, but it's a reasonable part of the discussion. Some people say that when Paul said we become one flesh, he was simply talking about the sexual union, the penetration. That when sex is performed, the two bodies are joined together as one. And some scholars are suggesting that's what Paul meant. But that's not the way the word flesh, one flesh, is used throughout the scripture regularly. It means personhood, embodiment. When God says, I will pour my spirit on all flesh, was he talking about only those practicing intercourse? Absolutely not. You know that's unreasonable. The word soma, the the word means embodiment, personhood. So they become one flesh. What it's saying is there is a personal transformation that takes place when your body and soul have intimacy with another human being. It brings two people into an embodiment that changes both of them. And the culture we live in celebrates and says it's natural to give your body without giving your complete self. The Bible says, yeah, that's not working. When you give yourself sexually, you've given your whole body to them. You cannot have that kind of commitment and separate who you are from your physicality. It shapes us or sex outside of God's plan breaks us. The second thing the Bible teaches us is that our sexuality prepares us. It not only forms and shapes us, but it prepares us. Verse 17. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. I'd like to illustrate this by, in John chapter 4, Jesus sent his boys into town to get some lunch. They went into a Samaritan village to find hospitality. Jesus sat at a well, and a woman came to draw water at the well. Many of you know this story. If you don't, it's in John chapter 4. Take 20 minutes this afternoon and read it. I think it'd be worth your time. This lady comes and Jesus said, would you give me a drink? And she said, you're a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. You think we're trash? Why are you bothering with me? Jesus said, if you gave me a drink, I would give you something to drink that would satisfy your thirst and you would never have to come to a well like this again. And the girl says, give me, give me what you got. And then Jesus does something fascinating. He asks her about her sexuality, about her relationship. Remember, he says, go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. He said, I know. You've had five, and you're now living with man number six. Why would he do that? Because how was she trying to quench her thirst? Through men. She felt if a man cared for her and protected her, that would give her meaning and value. And doesn't it sound like our culture? If you're having sex with the person you want to have sex with, regardless of your commitments, that you're going to find a deeper fulfillment than if you don't. And Jesus said, no, no, you'll always be thirsty unless I'm the one who quenches your thirst. And obviously he was speaking spiritually and socially and emotionally and her soul. He was saying, you're using your body for what, <coughs> excuse me, what only your soul can satisfy. I think that's a beautiful moment there. 
What God is trying to say is, you can't have intimacy without completeness. Oh, you can have moments. You can drink the poison and numb yourself, but it's, it's killing you. You see, even God did not offer us intimacy without absolute commitment. Did you guys catch that? The cross is all you need to know about how sold out God is to give you everything, holding nothing back. That this God that the world says doesn't want you to have sex because you'll enjoy it. No, our God says to the cross, I'm going to show you, you've drank the poison and I need to give you a transfusion. I need to save you completely because your blood is poisoned. So you have to ask yourself in every moment that your will and the word of God come in conflict. Do you have a God who can tell you no and still love you? It's a core question of this issue. Our worldview is shaped by a gospel that says, I've broken myself and I cannot fix myself. But Jesus Christ came to give me a new life and the only thing I need is a savior and he deserves my everything. That's the gospel. And the gospel is our hope. So what I'd like to do with the time remaining is let's talk about the implications of this. People in first hour said that first chunk was really heavy and Bible college-ish. I get it. But I need you to understand this morning. I'm not trying to impress you with what I know. I'm trying to put your face in the Bible so you understand the world has lied to us. It says you're just a sexual animal and you deserve to feel satisfied. And God says, no, you're, you're drinking poison. And here's the issue that I want to bring up. And I say this with respect. Because there are some people in this room who need to understand that your brokenness does not disqualify you. I'm asking us, where do we go forward? You see, there are some people in here who hear me talk about procreation. And deep down inside, they grieve because they would love to have the creative gift of God and they can't. And I'm not trying to drive a stake through your heart. There are people who have made horrific choices with their sexuality And they wish everything in their life they could go back and erase those moments. I'm not trying to drive a stake through your heart. What I'm trying to tell you is our hope is in Jesus Christ and the gospel. It's not in our record of purity. It can't be disqualified by our past mistakes. Jesus did not come to die on the cross for the good people. He came to die on the cross for me. Broken, shattered, a mess. So I know there's hope. But we have to understand disobedience is poisoning our souls. We can't separate your body from your soul and live the life God's called us to live. He created us for. So what are the implications of sexuality? Please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to walk you through this last little bit of text. Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Previously, that in the first two verses he said I want you to live in such a way as you please God and the will of God is your sanctification now remember the word sanctification is is part and parcel it's a cousin to holiness holiness is not perfection holiness is living dedicated to God above everything else he said your sanctification now in America we would translate that verse for this is the will of God that you're happy and we've confused happiness which is so temporary for what God wants to give us which is so permanent joy But he says, the will of God is your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Some translations say you flee from it. Now, I want to be clear here. Notice that Paul is not having a debate about whether things are sexually immoral or they aren't. There's no vote being taken on this. Here's one of the most important things I think I'm going to be able to say this morning. If you read Jesus and the writings of the Apostle Paul, they do not debate whether the Old Testament was accurate in what it called immoral. 
Today, people are saying, well, that Old Testament, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean this. Paul and Jesus, they really believed it meant everything it said. They affirmed every bit of the Old Testament law and sexual morality and what was immoral. So in a world today that's trying to parse the Old Testament, I have to ask you one question. If Jesus thought it was legitimate, who are we to question it? Because it then sets another foundation on which we can stand forever. But he says to flee sexual immorality. And the word that he uses for sexual immorality is the word porneia. Most of us would think that means don't look at pornography because it sounds the same. Oh, it's a much bigger, more powerful word. Any illicit sexual act, adultery and fornication, and I don't want to treat you as, as ignorant, but allow me to define that for people that don't have a strong church background. The word adultery means a person who is married to one person having sex with a person who's not their spouse. Fornication means two people who aren't married having sex. So this word porneia meant adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and pornographic stimulation. Now, if, if I know my statistics at all in a room this size, I think there's about two of you who escape those definitions. Because sin in our culture is a, or sex in our culture is a God. And too many of us have spent too much time in the temple worshiping the wrong God. And so the word to flee those things that are not from the Father. So allow me to say this. The biblical worldview is that sex is good, useful, and spiritual, but there's a blessed context. There is an appropriate place for that. And this is where I become more controversial and my, and my teaching will be under more scrutiny. What is the context? Let me begin by saying this. There are only two the right context, and everything else, according to the Bible. There's not variations or clauses or exceptions. There is God's way and the wrong way. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor. The sex act, the fulfillment of our sexuality, is not before marriage. It is not outside of a marriage covenant. Sex is for marriage only because it is the only place that sex can do the four things it's meant to do with the power God intends it to do. The only place. Now, some of you are saying, well, you know what? Truth is, I don't believe you. I've been sexually immoral, according to your definition, preacher, and I'm doing just fine. You may think so. And I don't wish anything on you. But I tend to believe my God knows exactly what he's talking about. And whether you've realized the problem of the poison, you've poisoned yourself. And the implications have yet to come if they're not personally present. I don't say that with any joy, but I can't let anybody sit in here today and go, you know what? I dodged it. God must not have noticed. Oh, he knows. And he's working hard to redeem you, not punish you. But should you be punished, it's because you did what Adam and Eve did. You did exactly what you were told not to do and decided you could make it better. See, our biblical worldview is that sex is good, useful, and spiritual, but it has a context in marriage. And I know I need to say this. And if you look at it, he says to take a wife for himself. Marriage, by biblical definition, is a man and a woman. But, but be careful. Because there are a bunch of us who have taken a husband or a wife who do not treat them in holiness and honor. So we have to live out God's complete plan, not just get married for sex. We need to get married for oneness. 
completeness. All of God's blessing. Second, there is a blessed purpose. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5. And this is the distinction here. This is where Paul says that we're to get married in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like heathens who do not know God. See, there's even wrong marriage, to get marriage just for sex and miss the better parts of it. And I know it's hard for us to believe that God could tell us no and still love us, that God could deny us a feeling and still care much about us. And I know and I believe, I've thought about this all week long, there are going to be people in this room who are divorced, their spouse left them, and they're, they're say, so the rest of my life, I have no expression for my sexuality, and you're a married guy standing on stage, and you get to say this to me. I'm, I'm not saying this to be right. I'm trying to point out to us that the word of God, that even when God prohibits something that seems so natural, there is a good reason behind it. And like the woman at the well, he's saying to you, drink from me, and I will meet your needs. It's a powerful vision of hope. It's a moment. And for Paul to say, not in the passion like the heathens who do not know God, notice he's saying, it's not that they don't know about God. I think we uh, substantiated that last week when we talked about the fact that everyone knows there's a God. Just Romans 1 tells us that everyone's aware that there is a creator. But he says they don't know God. They're aware he exists. And they think that he's telling them no all the time. But they really don't know the heart of God who sent his son to die on the cross to overcome all of our sins and to meet all of our needs. The biblical sex ethic is this. You cannot separate what your body does from what your soul becomes. Did you guys get that? You cannot separate what your body does from what your soul becomes. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 and 8. For God has not called us for uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is an issue of drawing closer to God or running further away. It's hiding in the bushes and covering yourself up with fig leaves. Or it's pursuing God when he comes in the garden and says, Father, I've, I ruined it. I threw away my soul for the pleasure of my body. And if you're sitting in that condition today, there's hope coming. Hold on, okay? But I want to make one more clarification if you'll turn to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says to this church, You, my brothers, were called to be free. Remember, he's talking to Christians now. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Once again, there's not a debate about the sinful nature. Verse 16, he says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. If you want to know what that looks like, come back on Wednesday night during our Q&A time. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, but you do not, excuse me, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. We were joking around a little bit earlier. Normally at this time I start sending you to tables with lights on, but who in the world would go to a table today, huh? You're all thinking, oh, I'll die in this chair. I'm not walking across this room. I get it. I get it. But would you all agree with me? We all got our junk. 
There's not a person sitting in here today because if you heard the list of what Paul says are ways we live if we know God and are walking by the Spirit and the ways we choose to live if we know about God and we're not in the Spirit. There's distinctions. Let me say it this way. Whether your desire is for a prohibited use of your sexual desires or whether it's for a prohibited use of your temperament, whether it's a prohibited use of your influence or a prohibited use of your selfishness. Notice that there are the big sins and the little sins. There are the things that are public and the things that are private. There are the things that are sexual and the things that are social. Paul lists them here. For some of us, you want me to jump out and say, if you do this, you're gone. If you do this, you're out. And I'm here to tell you that Paul is saying we are free in Christ. Why would we live like slaves to something that's poisoning us? The message today is not to bring you shame. The message is to show you we've all bitten the apple that was supposed to cure all of our problems, and it doesn't. When Adam and Eve bit that piece of fruit, they thought that they would become like God, and they realized they'd become less like God. And I think for many of us, even in the issue of sexual sin, we've pulled that fruit off the tree, and we've taken a bite, and we feel sick. My hope for you is that you're honest about your sin. I hope that's what you've heard today. I hope if you're young enough and you haven't given yourself away to what the world's told you to do, that you now understand that it's the goodness of God that calls you to be pure. It's not punishment. He's not trying to keep you from having fun. He's trying to keep you from the poison of sexual immorality. Paul says to flee from it, to give it to Jesus and allow the forgiving, cleansing renewing, healing work of Christ to begin today. Satan does not want us to say that there's anything wrong so that slowly but surely he can draw us away from God into shame and covering. And when God comes in the room, we're hidden. Instead of running to the Father in the cleansing of Jesus Christ, God is trying to shape us. After this service, myself, several members of our prayer team, a couple of our elders will be out out in the foyer by the prayer center. Today you may want to be prayed with. You may want us to pray for someone who's struggling. You may be praying for someone who wouldn't come here today because the topic would tear off a scab and cause them to hurt and bleed. Our intention as a church is not to grind you into the ground in submission, but it's to show you the hope in Jesus Christ and the restoration he brings. Because we have to flee sexual immorality in a world that says it is your right It makes you feel good. Why would anybody who loves you tell you you can't? The woman at the well. She showed up with great need. And Jesus.